Let's be honest with each other. There are some things in life that are difficult to swallow. Eggshells in your potato salad. Spinach. And pride. Swallowing your pride. It's enough to gag you, isn't it? Eating humble pie. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Could it be that that is the one culinary skill that God would have all of us master? Eating humble pie. Because of that, we have begun, you and I, a new mini-series here in the Pioneer Pulpit entitled, Not I, But Christ. Tales of Humility. Six biographies. In fact, we're going to throw a seventh one in next time you and I are together. Seven biographies. Tales of Humility. And you and me. Today's story, Humility's Best Friend. Let's pray. Oh God, in the calm of your presence, as the girls of mercy have just sung, in the calm of your presence, teach us. We need to get this one right. If indeed heaven is our home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's one of the greatest rags to riches, back to rags again stories in all of history. Born a slave, adopted, a prince, turned fugitive killer on the lamb, on the run. The whole world loves the story of the prince of Egypt. I want to take two scenes, just two scenes, in the life, the unforgettable life of Moses and you and me, if this is truly a tale of humility. Let's go to that opening scene. The little book of Exodus, the second book in your Bible. Grab your Bible right now. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a pew Bible in the rack right in front of you. Exodus chapter 2. Let's plunge into the story together. Just a couple scenes, maybe three. Exodus 2. This will be page 38 in your pew Bible. Follow along. If you didn't bring a Bible, you've got to follow this story. There is, a, there is a secret clue tucked into the heart of one of the records we're going to note in just a moment. So you need to see it. Exodus chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1. I'll be in the New King James Version. Whatever translation you have is fine. And a man, here we go. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. These are the twelve sons of Jacob. They're in Egypt. All right. Boy falls in love with a girl. Here we go. And she conceived, verse 2, so the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now, the, the clue to the subplot to this narrative is actually tucked away in chapter 1, where another Horatio Alger, rags to riches story, is immediately brought to mind when we see the one name. It is the name of another Hebrew slave who also was accelerated, elevated to... Uh, Heady prominence, we're talking about Prime Minister of Egypt, and in the name we all know, another fascinating tale, Joseph. All right? 
So Joseph is clued to in chapter 1, because then we all remember, oh, that's right, Joseph brought his, his nomadic tribe family from the north, brought them down into Egypt, settled them in the... Pharaoh said, you take the best land, settle them in the land of Goshen. We don't live that far from Goshen ourselves, do we? Settle, settle them in the land of Goshen. And that little band of 70, oh, they were a fertile bunch. And they immediately began to grow and grow and grow. And they became just like the United States. They became a nation within a nation, speaking another language. Then Pharaoh dies. How many Pharaohs go by? I have no idea. But the record says, and then arose a Pharaoh who did not know the former prime minister of Egypt, the Hebrew Joseph. It's not rocket science, just do the arithmetic. If this fertility explosion continues, they will eventually outnumber us. And so he declares them all illegal aliens. Sound familiar? Declares them all illegal aliens and then shackles them to begin building over decades the mighty cities of the Pharaoh. Yep, that's the story. Oh, and by the way, even though you shackle the Hebrew women, you can't stop their fertility. And the babies just kept coming until finally an imperial edict is, edict is issued by the Pharaoh. Every Hebrew boy you find, every baby Hebrew, shh, gone, kill them. No boys. No more boys. we got enough. So that's why the mother is hiding her newborn son. Now, we happen to know that the mother's name is Jochebed. Three months you can keep a little baby boy because baby boys are awfully noisy. I know. You can keep him quiet three months, but after that it's over. So, we'll pick the story up now. But when she could no longer hide him, verse 3... Exodus 2, verse 3, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him. Oh, my dad used to tell us this story as kids all the time. She took, a, she took an ark of bulrushes for him. She dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood afar off. That would be Miriam, we learn later. His sister stood afar off, 12 years older, to know what would be done to the little baby. Then, verse 5, the daughter of Pharaoh just happened there's no such thing as just happened in the economy of God, ladies and gentlemen. If your life is going through a horrible patch and stretch right now, you need to know that there's a God in this universe who just happens to be tracking your story. And in the moment of your greatest extremity, he can rewrite what is happening around you so that it just happens that you can get there from the here. You are stuck in today. It just happened that the daughter of Pharaoh, verse 5, came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, girls, get me that basket. What's up? And they did. And when she opened it, verse 6, she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. Now, I've got to tell you, this is, this is just a little teaching moment. I love animation and I love cartoons and all the rest, but when a cartoon attempts to portray sacred history, you've got to understand they don't always get it right. And in the cartoon, when she opens the lid, the baby begins to coo and laugh, a little giggle. But the one who wrote this story said, oh, no, 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 no. There's something happening here. 
the baby wails. It's a literary device. The chapter will end with a mighty wail ascending from the enslaved children of Israel to heaven. And it says, God heard to set us up for the God who hears the wailing of our broken hearts. The princess hears the wail as well. And it, it smites her. And behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him. And she said, hey, girls, this, this is one of the Hebrews kids. And all of a sudden, shh, somebody materializes at her side. Hey, where did you come from? Now, the princess is very bright. She wasn't born yesterday. This is not rocket science. When the little girl standing beside her, the 12-year-old says, Oh, by the way, I see you found the baby. Would you like a mother who was able to nurse this baby still nursing? The princess does two and two. This is the older sister. She knows where the mother is. And the princess feigns like she doesn't know. Well, imagine that. You know somebody who could feed this baby. Well, I tell you what, girl, get me that woman and bring her to me. That's exactly what happens. And so, verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter says to the mother, this would be Jochebed now, take this child away and nurse him for me. Hey, moms, how would you like this deal? Take this child away, nurse him for me, and I will pay you for being the mother that you're supposed to be. Is there a mother who would turn down that offer? I'll pay you for being a mother to this child. Paid to rear up that little baby. Oh, my. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And notice this. And the child grew. And she, the mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter one day. And he, the baby now grown, became her, the princess's son. So she, the princess, called his name Moses. Because I drew him out of the water. Now the Hebrew name is Moshe. It means drawn out. And it is probable that the Hebrew name is meant to match the Egyptian name that Moses was given. Because Tutmos, the, the pharaohs, ended with O-S-E. Moses. Moshe. I drew him out. He's my boy. Scholars are not sure exactly how old the baby was when Jacobed delivered little Moses to the princess, the adoptive mother. Some scholars suggest maybe he's two or three years old. That would make sense to me. But other scholars come along and say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. He was not to be delivered until childhood was through. And that, that transition time would be about the age of 12. Patriarchs and prophets agrees with those scholars that at the age of 12, Jacobin took little Moses to his new home. I can't let this moment slip by without reading a word to you. It's not in your study guide. I'll put it on the screen for you from the book Patriarchs and Prophets. Listen to this. It makes this stunning point significant. If there's a mother here or a mother to be within the sound of this voice, listen up. All right. Here we go. How, I'll put it on the screen for you. How far reaching in its results was the influence of that one Hebrew woman and she in exile and a slave? The whole future life of Moses, the great mission which he fulfilled as a leader of Israel, testifies to the importance of the work of the Christian mother. There is no other work that can equal this. Some of you, I've talked to mothers, I've talked to mothers, some of you are stewing away in an academic community like this because everybody else is getting a degree, everybody else is working for the university, and I'm stuck at home with these... Snotty-nosed brats. 
You don't feel that way often, but you do feel that way. Be honest. I've talked to mothers. Listen, Mama, there is no task on the planet equal to the high calling of being a mother. So don't you go down. Don't you go pooping on your own parade. Huh? No task equal to this. Read on. Put it on the screen there. To a very great extent, the mother holds in her own hands the destiny of her children. Let every mother feel that her moments are priceless. Her work will be tested in the solemn day of accounts. Then it will be found that many who have been blessed, that, that many who have blessed the world with the light of genius and truth and holiness owe the principles that were the mainspring of their influence and success to a praying Christian mother. You keep praying, Mama. Hey, listen, Papa, I've heard enough amens from you. I want to hear from the women now. Listen, Mama, I want you praying. You keep praying until that child, till you or the child dies, whichever comes first. You pray. I have mothers who are heartbroken. They're saying, listen, I, it's all over. I couldn't do it. I just, I failed. You didn't fail. You are succeeding right now. You just keep praying. You do not know the impact of an accumulated treasure chest of your prayers in heaven one day. You never stop praying. You pray and you pray and you pray. Now, the sacred story of Exodus just fast forwards over 30 years, gone. We would not know what happened during those 30 years were it not for a man who was on trial for his life. In fact, his defense will be eloquent, but it will not work. They will still martyr him at the end of that trial. Because of Stephen, we now know a detail that would never have been known. And I want to take you to Stephen, the defense of his life. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Find Acts. See, you got it here. Here's where something slips in that we never would have known. Watch this. Acts chapter 7. Fascinating. Acts chapter 7. Stephen is on defense. He will be stoned at the end of the chapter. Pick it up in verse 20. So in the middle of his defense, he's kind of rec he's recounting sacred history. And then he comes to Moses. Verse 20. And at this time, this is Acts. Oh, by the way, I didn't give you the page number. 738. Don't let me rush you here. 738. All right. Verse 20. And at this time... Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. So far, the account agrees. But when he was set out in that little uh, bulrush's ark, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. Now, notice verse 22. And Moses was learned, that's how we say that word, learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. I'm going to hit the pause button right there. Now, Stephen is summarizing... The nearly 30 years that Moses has lived in the gilded, as it were, palaces of Pharaoh. No record anywhere else. And then Stephen comes along and says, oh, by the way, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. And that ought not to surprise any of us, because guess what? He was adopted by the princess of Egypt. Wouldn't it make sense that the princess of Egypt would train him in the highest? and greatest institutions of the entire world, wouldn't it make sense to conclude that indeed Moses sat at the feet of the world's brightest intellects, that Moses in fact was trained as an officer in the world's mightiest army? Of course, he's a boy to king. He's going to be trained as a warrior. Wouldn't it make sense that he studied in the classrooms of the world's most brilliant jurists? 
Come on. When you adopt a child, trust me, you will invest every penny you have to ensure the success of that child. And when you're the princess of Egypt and you have it all, you get it all as the boy of the queen of the princess. By the way, patriarchs and prophets, take a look at this. Put it on the screen for you. Patriarchs and prophets, at the court of Pharaoh, Moses received the highest civil and military training. The monarch had determined to make his adopted grandson his successor. He's in line. He's in line. His successor on the throne and the youth was educated for his high station. His ability as a military leader made him a favorite, a favorite with the armies of Egypt, the prince of Egypt. And he was generally regarded as a remarkable character. And 30 years fly by. 30 years of the best that the world has to offer. And through all of them, as Stephen's defense is now about to make clear, Moses never forgets that he is a Hebrew and a child of the almighty creator God. He's one with the slave race, and he is one with their God. He never forgets. Let me read to you verse uh, 23 now. Okay, the 30 years went by, skipped in Exodus, verse 23 of Acts 7. Now, when he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart... To visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Something mysterious happened one day. We are not told the occasion. Something dawns in the mind of this young prince. He knows who he is. And it came into his heart. If we didn't have the Bible Hall of Fame... We wouldn't know what came into his heart. But I want to sh- show this with you. We'll just do it off the... Stay right there in Acts 7. We'll do it off the screen. This is Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, all right, around the age of 40, when he became of age, refused. Something clicked inside and he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt For he looked to the reward. The die was cast. We don't know what it took, but the die was cast. His decision is made. Now, I've got to share this with you. This is fascinating. A little bit of intriguing detail from patriarchs and prophets. Look at this. Angels instructed Moses that Jehovah had chosen him to break the bondage of his people. He, supposing that they would obtain their freedom by force of arms, expected to lead the Hebrew host against the armies of Egypt. We're going to do this militarily, and I'm the one. And so one sunny afternoon, he steps off of his chariot, and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster without mercy, flogging the life out of one of his countrymen, a fellow Hebrew. Go back to Acts 7. I want to pick up again in verse 23. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart. Stephen's defense is going on here. It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Now, verse 24. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed. Exodus 2 says he looks this way and he looks that way. He makes sure that there is no eyewitness to what he is about to do as prince of Egypt. 
And then he struck down the Egyptian. When you've been trained as a warrior, a general with the Egyptian armies, it's a piece of cake. Gone. And then Exodus 2 tells us that with sand, he covers up the murdered Egyptian. It's buried. It's over. Trying on my new calling. How's it feel, Moses? I'm a leader. I've been called to deliver this people. The next day. The next day. Where is this? Verse 24, he buries the Egyptian. For he, and I want, to, I want you to catch 25. Now, this is the clue that Stephen gives that you won't find anywhere else. Look at verse 25 of Acts 7. For, why did he do it? He supposed... That his brothers would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. He said, well, they know. They did know who he was. Trust me. They knew who he was. He knows who they are. Everybody knows. That man is a Hebrew. Next to the throne of Egypt. The next day. So the next day, verse 26, Moses appeared to two of them as they were fighting, trying to reconcile them, saying, Hey, listen, guys, come on, come on, you're brothers. Why do you wrong one another? Now watch this. Only in Stephen's account. These are two Hebrew slaves going out. One's just getting ready to go again. And Moses is trying to break it up. And the one who's about to slug, look, 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 look at this. But he who did his neighbor wrong, verse 27, pushed him away. You have a little bit of physical here. You have that slave coming up to Moses. Get out of here. Who made you to be a ruler and judge over us? You know, that's an embarrassing question, isn't it? To ask Moses, hey, Moses, who made you the ruler? The answer is Moses did. I'm doing it my way. And in that instant... When the slave looks into the prince's face and says, Hey, I suppose you're going to kill me now like you slaughtered the Egyptian yesterday. Moses knows it's over. Destiny's plan A crashes and burns because of Moses. And the record reads, And then at this saying, Moses fled. Moses fled a colossal failure with a death warrant now on his head. Failure. Failure. Who among us today does not know the meaning of that word? Failure in life. Failure in love. Failure in business. Failure in career, failure in marriage, failure in school, failure in private, failure in public. Who of us here today does not know the meaning of that awful word, the terrible dreaded letter grade that life gives us, the letter F, because you fail. George Bernard Shaw intoned, My reputation grows with every failure. Failure. It's the alkaline taste on your tongue. I tell you what, when you fail, you can taste it. Trust me. You can taste it in your mouth. Failure. It's the knotted pit in your gut 
when you know you have failed, when you have dreamed so hard to win and then you lose, failure. Who here does not know the meaning of crashing and burning as the whole world stares? Failure. And those of us who have been condemned to live our lives in public, perhaps especially and most painfully know well the acidic taste of failure as a preacher whose calling and livelihood necessitate the standing up behind a microphone and attempting to transmit the sometimes jumbled symbols on a scribbled page. I, I know, I know the feel of failure. And the ruthless, the ruthless post-mortems that come from a wounded mind. Play it again, Sam! And so you do, again and again and again, that moment when I humiliated myself. And that's it. The pain is because of self, pride, ego. Last Sabbath, we learned it was hubris. That's the root of the hurt and the wound. That's why they call it a wounded pride. Wounded. It hurts. Failure. Failure hurts. When you get the dreaded letter grade F, it's awful. And I suppose those of us who have failed would have given up long ago had it not been for the story of Moses. Forty long years dragged by. All those dreams of leadership, all that pride of his divine calling, it's gone, it's gone, it's over. Finish. All he's got now is an incorrigible flock of sheep bang behind him all over a barren desert. Oh, he's got a loving wife, two precious sons, but in a world where accomplishments are never measured by the success of your home life, what are they? Moses has failed. And though strangely enough, hold on, hold on. Strangely enough, in a most counterintuitive sort of way, it turns out to be a successful failure. I want you to see this in your study guide. Patriarchs and Prophets again. You're going to need to fill it in. Put it on the screen for you. Shut in now. He's fled. Shut in by the bulwarks of the mountains, Moses was alone with God. The magnificent temples of Egypt no longer impressed his mind with their superstition and falsehood. In the solemn grandeur of the everlasting hills, he beheld the majesty of the Most High and in contrast realized how powerless and insignificant were the gods of Egypt. Everywhere the Creator's name was written, Moses seemed to stand in his presence and to be overshadowed by his power. Now watch this. Here his pride and self-sufficiency, write that down. His pride and self-sufficiency were swept away in the stern simplicity of his wilderness life. The results of the ease and luxury of Egypt disappeared. Moses became patient, reverent, and humble. Write it down. Humble. 
And then it quotes Numbers 12, verse 3, that declares Moses was very meek above all men which were upon the face of the earth. Yet, Patriarchs and Prophets concludes, yet strong in faith in the mighty God of Jacob. Ladies and gentlemen, write it down. Apparently, failure is humility's best friend. Apparently, failure is humility's best friend. Apparently, God allows us to fail with the counterintuitive hope that we might through Him successfully fail. You think about it. Come on, think about it. What is it? What is there that stuns our ego and wounds our pride more quickly and deeply than failure, be it public or private? Huh? When you know you failed. Which surely then would make failure a very good friend of humility. Does it not? I mean, come on, when are we more teachable than in the crucible of failure? When are we more, can I coin a word here? When are we more humbleable than when we fail? You are never more vulnerable. You have been sliced open and it feels like the whole world is gaping. Failure. Failure. Humility's best friend. Maybe that reason alone is why we ought to embrace our failures. Give them a good hug. A few years ago, somebody came to me and gave me a book. I love getting books. But did you have to get this personal? They gave me Andrew Murray's great classic, Humility. They handed it to me and said, you need to read this, Dwight. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. I did. I brooded through that book three times. And my soul, oh, if I could give you a book, fellow wounded traveler, I'd get you that book. Humility. Andrew Murray taught me something. I'm still wrestling with it, but I've got to pass it on to you. We must come to the place in life where we learn to embrace that which humbles us. He said, come on, are you talking about my failure in marriage? I'm supposed to embrace that? Yeah. My failure in school? I'm supposed to embrace that? Yep. My failure in my business? I'm supposed to embrace that? Yep. Whatever it is. That has humbled you. Embrace it. Whew. That is some thought. I'm going to give you the words from Andrew Murray. Jot them down. Because you know what, Murray? You need to kind of hold on to your pew for this one. Murray says, the great, listen to this. Murray says the great goal of the spiritual journey is to be humbled over and over again. Ouch. Watch this, guys. It's in your study guide. Fill it in. Mary writes, except the great South African divine, except with gratitude everything that God allows from within or without. Inside of you, outside of you, doesn't matter. Accept it with gratitude. From friend or enemy, in nature or in grace, to remind you of your need of humbling. Write it in. And to help you do it. Believe humility. Believe humility to indeed be the mother virtue, your very first duty before God, and the one perpetual safeguard of the soul. Set your heart upon it as a source of all blessing. I.e., we must come to the place where we embrace what humbles us. We embrace it. 
That's not, that's not, hey, hey, that's not new with Andrew Murray. He got it from Jesus. Take a look at the screen. He got it from Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, come to me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He got it from Jesus. Look at this. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles herself will be exalted. He got it from Jesus. Look at this. John chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. And so, taking a towel, he washed their feet. You know what's happening there? Christ is embracing what humbles him. This is humbling. You're the master. These are the disciples. One of them should be doing this. But he embraces it. He says, no, I'll do it. And then, in an ultimate demonstration that Christ practiced what he preached, he dies a despicable criminal forsaken by God. God himself on that center cross. And Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 declares, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Apparently, we need to come to the place in life where we can embrace what humbles us. Some of you are saying, oh, brother... What are you saying? Do I thank God for it? Yeah. we got another one coming up here in a second time from now that you and I will be together. Listen to that tale of humility. Yeah, thank God for it. Mm-hmm. Painful as it is, embrace your failure as humility's best friend. I know people, not you of course, I know people who don't even want to go back out into public. Not in the public where they failed. It may be at the office. They don't want to go back. I'm not even going back. They don't want to go back to the public where they served. They don't want to go back because everybody they are convinced knows they have failed and everybody is staring at them. And I know people who keep themselves away from church for that reason. I'm not going back to church. I have failed and I don't want to be reminded of that failure every time I see one of my brothers or sisters in Christ. My friend, get over it. The issue is not about what do other people think. The issue is what does God think. Embrace. Embrace. Embrace what what has humbled you. You know why you're wounded? You know why you feel that pain, Dwight? Because you got an ego. It's still alive. And God is letting you know it's still there. we got more work to do, boy. You know... I just wonder. Maybe that's why Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? Maybe that's why Jesus was so calm. Always. I mean, you spit in my face? Okay, I'll I'll hug you. You curse me? I embrace you. You say what about me? I embrace that saying. Maybe that's why under provocation, Christ is so quiet and at peace. I mean, you've got to think this through with me. If we embraced everything, everyone... Hey, let me talk about, now that we we brought it up, everyone. There are some people who seem to major in life humiliating us. You notice that? They're always the ones in the conversation, oh, no, it's not quite like that. I actually did a little more research and I found it was this way. Every time you open your mouth, they're there saying, no, it's not quite like, no, no, wrong again. It's like God appointed them to be your permanent humbler. (laughs) Embrace the person. Embrace the person. Hey, thank you. (laughs) Hey, I needed that one. 
It's hard to do. But, you know, we would look at people different, differently. We would look at things differently. We would look at pain differently. We would look at suffering differently. We would look at everything differently. We would have Christ's peace in our hearts. We would just say, hey, God's still at work in my life. Please be patient with me. He just showed me. I still, ooh, I still have some ego in there. That's why he wounds it. So I see it. One day, one day, you're going to be just like Jesus. One day, no, 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 no. One day, you're going to be just like Moses. Forty years gone. Moses. The forty years looked like an absolute and utter failure. A total wash. But somewhere in this book, somewhere in that book, there is a line that reads, Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. Forty years go by, and then it's graduation day all over again. They're just about to hand out the diplomas. In fact, when the hand goes up, no, I have one final examination to give. The, the examination has only one question on it, and it is this. Have you learned the lesson of humility yet? And so a voice out of a roaring orange bush stops Moses. One more exam. Now, if that, if that exam had been given 40 years earlier, 40 years earlier, have you, hey, have you learned the lessons of life yet? Here's what Moses would have said. Hebrew, uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Hey, come on. I am learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. I am mighty in word. I am mighty in deed. I'm ready. Do you need a leader? I'm here. Take me. Forty years ago, he failed. He failed the exam. Forty long, wearing years later, the question returns. And I want you to see this before I sit down. Look at this. Go back to Exodus. We'll end right where we began. Exodus chapter 3 now. The crackling, roaring orange bush is speaking. Exodus chapter 3. Take a look at this. Take a look at this. Exodus chapter 3. Moses is down on his face. I am who I am. He's down on his face. He's not looking into the bush now. He's answering all his questions with his head bowed. A good way to answer God, by the way. His head is bowed. And the voice from the crackling fire speaks, verse 10, Exodus 3, Come now, therefore, and I will send you. I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, face still in the dust. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And the voice in the orange bush cried out, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
Sinai towering overhead. And Moses answers. Now go to chapter 4. Moses answers again in verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Oh, time out. Hold it right here. Is this the prince of Egypt? Is this the man mighty in words and mighty in deeds? Something has happened in 40 years. Oh, God, you can't. I got a slow tongue. I got a slow mouth. You got the wrong man. And the voice in the orange still speaks. Verse 11, so the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore, verse 12, go, Moses, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall say. But Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. I cannot do it. And lo, the record reads... The God of the universe raised his hands to those about him. And he said, Amen and Amen. Moses is now ready to lead because at last he knows he is nothing. And so it was, ladies and gentlemen. That Moses became the greatest and humblest man who ever has lived. Proving true that humility's best friend is failure. If only we will embrace what humbles us. Just like Moses. Just like Jesus.